Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. It's the few and the proud and the committed or those that are older and have to go to the restroom uh, a lot, uh, you know, in the morning. Um, don't know what that meant exactly. Hey, salt, don't leave. I have tax stuff for you. Oh, you got it? Nice, nice. Please, let's pray. Let's play right now for a big refund, shall we, for me? Let's just, <laughs> let's just commit that to the Lord. Well, hello, everybody. And by everybody, I mean 40 of you. Um, we're excited that you're here. You survived the fog. You sprung forward. How many people do you think? Let's see, they would have come at, if they missed it, when they would have showed up at eight? They'd show up in an hour. Okay, all right, so we'll, we'll mock them. Can we mock them together? Is that okay? If we just kind of, if, if, if a bunch of people come in at 10, we'll just be like, well, hello, spring. Um, so hello, Jennifer, and hello, Tim, my friend Tim, driving all the way up from Costa Mesa. I mean, that's, that's a whole different part of California, man. Bless you. Thanks for, thanks for being that committed. We came last night. You came last night and slept over? Okay, that's excellent. <laughs> Oh, well, good morning. Um, if you're new, bless you for, for coming on Daylight Savings Time. Uh, my name is Mike, and uh, this is a community called Vox, which is Latin for voice. Um, and we're thrilled you're here. You can find us online at voxoc.com. And um, you can sign up for something called a New to Vox Dinner, which is uh, our joy of having you over to our place and uh, talk a little bit about the community. And then, um, and then you can also sign up for something called Table Fellowships, which uh, is a fancy name for dinner and conversation that we're hosting uh, all over Orange County. Um, and those have started already, so you can RSVP for those. We just love to know who's coming. Um, and there's a, a special one for 18 to 26 year olds like myself. So uh, I'll be at that one. So bless you. We're thrilled you're here. Um, we like to start off with a bit of Q&A. So people um, text in questions from the previous week. I don't spend a lot of time looking at these. We just kind of pick ones that can fit on the fewest slides possible. Um, and I've got a collection of probably 100 or so that we've not yet gotten to. So I, I don't know how to get to all of those. Uh, someday we will do so. Uh, but let's fire up uh, the Q&A. So this is the phone number. And uh, please feel free to text in recipes or uh, what you had for breakfast. Uh, we love hearing about that. Okay, I'm at Costco and they have cargo shorts. What size, that's a personal question, and color do you wear? I wasn't sure if you had more than one pair. Now, that's funny. And I love that you were at Costco, and that's where I do clothes shopping. That's I've very clearly um, my fashion kind of sweet spot. And, um, and so usually, so, so I wear uh, beige cargo shorts, always, except today when I went into the laundry and discovered that they'd not yet been done um, from when I had to wear them. We had a live show on Thursday night, and I wore them, but they were in the washer still wet. So imagine my horror when I had to pull out my only other pair of cargo shorts, and they're blue. And so I have bay shorts, and I have them in three sizes, just so you know, fat, super fat, and then, dang, I need bariatric surgery. Um, and uh, and uh, these are kind of in the, in the super fat range, but we're shrinking a bit. 
Um, and, uh, and, and frankly, I don't, I, I'm good. I've got, I've, I wear one pair of shorts and I wear a couple of shirts and I just, I just, I'm very happy in that sort of like, it's kind of the outfit, you know? I mean, if I wear something else, people notice. And, and if you look it up on Facebook, and anything on Facebook is true, we all know this, geniuses often wear the same things over and over and over again because it simplifies their decision making so their genius can be used in other directions. <laughs> Next. Oh, hi. Can you help me understand Exodus 9.12, which is, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. I've heard some unsatisfying explanations. Are they right or am I missing something? Well, I don't know, I don't know what unsatisfying explanations you've heard, so I, I don't know if they are right. I will say, however, this. I, and, and, and I counted these a while back, so I think the count is accurate, but you may, you may find it not to be. But it's roughly uh, 10, I think it says 20 times Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 10 of those are Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and 10 of those are using the expression, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, other, and this is consistent with what we see all throughout the scripture. What God, God's judgment consists of is giving people over to the natural inclinations, to the direction they're already going. God, God is not preparing Pharaoh and saying, you know what, I've prepared you um, and your toast and, you know, I, I just prepared you specifically to harden your heart. I don't think that's what the text says. I think there is an interplay between what Pharaoh is choosing to do and God's allowing him to be cemented in that direction. So I don't see this. Now, if it was all God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that'd be a different thing, but it's not. It interplays back and forth if you read the text very closely. And I think this is very consistent with what we've been talking about in terms of judgment and so on. So I don't know if that counts as an unsatisfying explanation. I, I happen to think it's the best one ever, but we'll see. All right, question three. Can we talk about this whole pray a prayer thing? I feel like that was created by people to make a clear line to whether or not salvation is given to a particular person. What does the Bible really say about how we know where we stand in judgment? Oh, great question. Wow. All right. Um, you, do you know what this person's meaning by the whole prayer, the prayer thing? Have you ever seen this kind of altar call, kind of close your eyes, bow your heads, pray a prayer, raise your hand if you pray the prayer. I've done this like a zillion times, and I've stopped doing it for exactly this reason. Number one, Jesus and Paul never did anything like this. Jesus is, uh, what was Jesus' invitation to people? Do you remember? What was his constant invitation? What was it? Come on, yes, that was excellent. There's another one I was looking for, so, you know, mostly credit uh, for you. Um, what did he preach? Huh? Follow me, yes, but there's a uh, partial credit. Okay. I, I had one impression of the spiritual maturity of our community, and now I have a different impression of the spiritual maturity of our community. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, no, his message was always, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is now available to you. Right? That was the summary of his message. And what that meant was reorient your entire life around the fact that in the person of Jesus, 
The, the kingship, the benevolence, the grace, the majesty that is present in God's rule and reign from eternity past to eternity future is now available to you without the intermediaries getting in the way. That was the message Jesus preached. Now, if a prayer expresses that, then of course, that's a wonderful prayer. But so often, people just trust in the little prayer without anything backing it up because we say, well, it's just all grace, right? You don't have to do anything. Problem is that that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches you follow, you disciple, you apprentice, you, and the way that you know whether or not you're actually his is that your life begins to bear fruit. And fruit consists of not only internal transformation, right, love, joy, peace, patience, but external behavior. And so we, you know, we talked about this last week, right? The, the, it's not just the cross for us, it's the cross in us. It's not just salvation as forgiveness, it's salvation as transformation and restoration. And so, um, you know, in the same way, I don't ever wonder if I'm married because my whole life has been oriented around this other person. I don't wonder whether or not Jesus is the one my life is oriented to. And I'm not judging that on perfection, I'm judging that actually on a whole trajectory of life up till that point. Make sense? So the pray the prayer thing, I, I've seen power, I've seen God use that, of course God uses that stuff, absolutely. But I think there's some truth to the idea that, you know, hey, well we had, uh, 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 so I'll hear, I'll, I've said this and I'll, I'll hear people say this, well we had 100 people accept Jesus. And what they mean by that is we had 100 people repeat a prayer. And who knows whether that was true or not? Who knows whether that will, that will bear fruit or not? So for the early church, the, the, the marker was baptism, and they wouldn't let you be baptized uh, unless you went kind of an undergoing, and uh, you under, an undergoing, unless you underwent like a rigorous um, examine, um, a rigorous testing, then they would baptize you. And that was, you know, it was the community that baptized, not the just community that prayed a prayer. Make sense? All right, I'm two minutes over. Done. All right, we're going to lead with teaching today. We're leading with teaching. And you know why, Carolyn? Because you're sleepy. And we figure, you know what? If it's singing, there's no singing. So it's teaching right now. And you guys will make you even more drowsy. So we're very excited about that. So here's what we're going to do. We decided uh, Easter's coming. And before we turn the corner into Easter, um, we decided we wanted to, to spend a little bit of time kind of because we've had uh, a lot of new people um, we wanted to spend a little time um, refreshing the three convictions that Vox is built on. Church is to be the safest place to talk about anything. The church's posture to the world is love of service and not judgment. And the church should lead the way in capturing the hearts and the minds of the next generation. And so um, we want to spend just a week on each of those. And then we'll flip to Easter and then we've got, uh, we've got some stuff after Easter planned. I don't know what that is yet, but I'm sure God knows and uh, I'll be very excited to find out what that is. So we want to talk about this whole safest place to talk about anything. That manifests itself in the stories we tell, in Q&A, in, in being very intentional about doubt and questions and skepticism very intentional about being in pain or in process. We don't want to hide this. We don't want to dress this up. But I want you to see in Scripture, this is one of the most important spiritual disciplines that should be practiced as a community and has certainly not been embraced by most of the American church. So we want to look at a, a guy named Paul who, I mean, if you're like into the Bible, is kind of a big deal. Right, he writes two-thirds of something called the New Testament. He was probably the most famous missionary and church planter. And it's very tempting 
when you study the life of Paul, to almost uh, over-idealize the early church, right? The closest church to Jesus. They, they were awesome. They changed the world. God used them magnificently. And, and some of them were really jacked up. I mean, really jacked up. So you'll hear people like, let's get back to the early church. There are parts of the early church we don't want to get back to. And so Paul planted a church in a city called Corinth. And, this, and, and Corinth was the Las Vegas uh, of its day. It was Corinth, uh, to be a Corinthian was synonymous with being sexually immoral. To be a Corinthian was synonymous with having all sorts of excesses in your life. It was, it was a huge, huge deal. And the reason was, there was no, it was, it was established um, by Roman freedmen. Roman freedmen, that sounds like a person. Uh, no, Roman free men who had served in the military or had been granted Roman citizenship. And it was, and, and a colony was established, much like Philippi, that became a cultural and economic powerhouse. And one of the reasons why it did is because there was no established aristocracy and you could rise, one of the few places, you could rise simply on the merits of your wisdom, your cunning, your business sense. And so in Corinth, what was rewarded more than anything else was power. And power was expressed in boasting. Power was expressed in achievement. Power was expressed in social standing. And there were ways in which you practiced that. Now here comes a guy named Paul. Paul plants a church and initially has success, but then it starts running into problems. Here's some of the problems. Go ahead and fire up um, the beginning of the slides. So, so he writes, we have two letters. He wrote more than that to this church. In the second one, he, he lets us in on the fact that his church was actually demanding proof that Christ was speaking through him. Okay, so... Here's Paul, like the guy who met Jesus on the road, the guy who has visions, the guy who's like leading the way into the non-Jewish world, and people were going, um, really? Is Jesus really speaking through you? Or, or next, in this first letter, he says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, remember the church met in, in homes, they've informed me that there are quarrels among you. Shocking that the early Christians disagreed with each other. And what's even more shocking is they disagreed over who their favorite teacher was. Who does that? Right? I mean, what kind of nonsense? I mean, I'm so glad we're more mature than this. Right? Evidently, they loved personality. So one of you says, I follow Paul. Right? Paul planted the thing. Another of you says, well, I follow Apollos. Apollos evidently was like this really sweet order. Right? Unbelievable speaker. I love the way that guy teaches. It really feeds me. Another says, I follow Cephas. Cephas was Peter. Peter, man, Peter walked with Jesus. Are you kidding me? Paul, Paul met him in a vision. Who knows what that even means? Peter was actually on the road with Jesus. And still another, I follow Christ. <laughs> right? So he planted a church, and the church is totally divided over human personalities. Shocking. I know. Next. And then, and then Paul even says, when I came to you, I, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. What were the things that Corinthians valued? Eloquence and human wisdom. He did not come with those things as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Do you think the Corinthians respected that at all? Weakness and great trembling? Hello? No, absolutely not. 
I had one version of how spiritually mature this community was, and then it just... My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. What did the Corinthians value? Wise and persuasive words. But a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Next. Later on in the same letter. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Do you see how defensive he's having to be against the church he planted? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. I planted the church, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. So do you see what's happening? The church that he planted is now going, not all of us are fans of Paul. He was weak. He came with fear and trembling. He doesn't speak with eloquence. This is my defense. And they sat in judgment of him. Don't we have the right to food and drink? One of the things that Paul did that really ticked them off is Paul worked. See, the great orders of Corinth would be supported by patrons. Paul didn't want their support. So he actually worked a menial job that was a cause for the Corinthians to see him as a teacher of little reputation. If he had to actually support himself, that meant he wasn't a good teacher. So don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as the other apostles do and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, again, Peter? Or is it only on Barnabas who lacked the right to not work for a living? Right? He's, do you see how defensive he is? Correct? Now, this, this blows up by his second letter. When, <laughs> and I know this is so weird to say, there were other super apostles. They called themselves super apostles who came into Corinth and were, were um, dogging on Paul. So super apostles. So he, it's not just that they sat in judgment of him, but there were other apostles preaching a different message who were now undercutting Paul's authority. Okay? Are you getting a picture for like how crazy this is? So, a culture that loves power and strength and eloquence and wise words and a man who was none of those things. And you see how the church became, uh, became disaffected and so other very powerful personalities, celebrity pastors, right, showed up and the church was just wooed to them because Paul exhibited so much weakness. Now, just several more chunks of the Bible when we get to kind of our point. What Paul does in response to these challenges is pretty, pretty instructive. So fire up uh, the next set of slides, if you would. So Paul, in the second letter, begins to defend himself. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid, that's what they called him, when face to face with you, but bold toward you in a way. In other words, when he's there, he's very meek. But when he's writing letters, he's very forceful, so they, they made fun of him for that. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident they belong to Christ, next, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast, now boasting, guys, look at me, I know you're tired, I can see some of you drifting, I don't blame you. Boasting is a key word in the Corinthian vocabulary. Boasting was how you let people know how awesome you were. Now, today we have social media for that. Back then, part of your oratory was that you would list your accomplishments before you would begin speaking. And, and I mean, and, and I, can't even, I can't even give you a picture for how nuts Corinth was for eloquence 
and wise and persuasive words. All right, this was, because it was all about social standing and climbing the social ladder, huge deal. So when Paul begins to talk about boasting, the Corinthians loved the fact that the super apostles boasted. All right? And they were totally disaffected with the fact that Paul didn't. So, so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Next. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some of you say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. This is what they were saying. Paul, get, it gets back to him that this is, this is the Yelp review of Paul. His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Oh my goodness. Next. Another place, Paul says this. I do not think I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. Next. I repeat, different section. Now this, now, pay attention here. Notice what Paul does. He's going to start boasting. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do take me for a fool, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as Jesus would, but as fools do. So he's, he's not only going after them and anyone who boasts, but people who love boasting too. He says, since many are boasting in the way the world does, all right, I'll boast. Here's my resume. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, of course. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. In other words, I am Jewish. Not only Jewish, but like Jewish-Jewish. Are they servants of Christ? And then he says, I'm out of my mind to speak this way. I am more. And then notice what he starts boasting about. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been in constant, I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from non-Jews called Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I've gone without hunger and thirst. Uh, or excuse me, I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my what? So what's Paul do? In a church that loves resumes, in a church that was fascinated with super apostles and their impressiveness, Paul boasts about how unimpressive he actually is. He doesn't hide that. He doesn't pretend that that's not true. He actually leans in and says, and here's the point, my weakness is actually the proof that God is working through me. Do you get that? Now, now, if you've been a church person, you're like, oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. 
But no, 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 no. The American church shows that it doesn't believe this. Right? The American church is absolutely in love with super apostles. Somebody like Paul wouldn't get a job in an American church. What resumes do you bring? What strengths? What spiritual gifts? What's your resume? Oh, well, I've suffered a lot. So when he boasts, he boasts of things that show his weakness. Now, one last section. You're doing great. You're hanging in there mostly. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Therefore, so he goes on about the visions that he's had. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. That's a way of saying some sort of physical illness, some sort of emotional illness. Some, it was something that was discomforting, that was hard, that was disappointing. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. And then here's this very famous verse. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may what? Rest on me. Next. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, if there is any section of the Bible that is more contradictory to the American way of seeing the world, it's that one. Right? Are you hearing the wind? Oh, I have this little fan. The Beyonce kind of look, again, is what I'm going for. Now, let me show you. We're going to do a little Greek, all right? You're like, man, we've done a lot of Bible. I'm sorry, so much Bible. My bad. I apologize. Let's do a little Greek, which is what the language was the Bible was written in, at least the New Testament. And um, I want to show you, so the standard translation of the very famous verse, next slide, is this one. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But there's actually an argument that's not the best way to translate the verse. Now, just stick with me for like three minutes, okay? Three. Next. In that standard translation, there's no personal pronoun for power. So go back one, Bob. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There's no my. So we don't know whose power God is talking about. Right? So there's no my in the original language. Next, go forward. And the verb that we translate made perfect um, is, uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, teleo, which means brings to an end, not teleo, which is perfecting or maturing. Okay, I know, which, which means another way to translate that verse next is this way. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, because your power is brought to its end in weakness. In other words, we're not talking about God's power being made perfect. We're talking about Paul's power being brought to its end. Do you see the difference between the two? I don't know. Kind of like, yeah, maybe. Maybe. But notice the implication, if you, if, you, if you understand the verse this way, my grace is sufficient for you, because Paul, 
your power is brought to its end in weakness. Instead of my power is made perfect in weakness, it's Paul. Your power is brought to its end in weakness. And then the next verse, next. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And the word that's rest there is a word that we get tabernacle or dwell. In other words, where does God work best? Where does God show himself most powerfully? In the lives of believers. Dallas Willard has this great line. He's like, you know where God's address is? It's at the end of your rope. You don't know where God does his best stuff. It's when your power is brought to its end. Now, what's American culture built on? My power being made more manifest, correct? Right? Paul's actually arguing, no, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. God's, the reason we don't see God's power is because we make so much of our own. Why is God doing his best work overseas? Because they don't have fog machines. And they don't have super apostles. And they're not arguing about which celebrity pastor is better or worse than this other celebrity pastor, right? The, the, reason, the reason we don't see God's power is we make so much of our own, our next killer sermon series, and man, that was an awesome worship set, and oh, that was an incredible church, and God showed up, and you're just like, ah. How about the believers that are like, they, they, they meet because they walk miles in a jungle to hide, and they meet with seven other believers, and they they just feel privileged to do it, right? I mean, which, which do you think God is kind of, a God loves us all, of course, but if you're God and you're going to rest and you're going to show yourself powerful, you've got folks that welcome weakness and thereby welcome God's power, and then you've got folks who fight weakness with everything they've got. And God simply says, great. If you're so infatuated with great sermons and hip churches. Now, I'm not saying God can't use that. I mean, you know, I hope this is a sermon and this is a church and that he uses these things. Uh, so, no, no. Small celebrity pastor. Not in stature, however, but other ways. <laughs> I've done the celebrity pastor thing and I've done the big church thing. And I can say with 100% certainty that God can use, if he can use me, he can use anybody. If he can use you, he can use anybody. Hallelujah. But, if you look at the trajectory of the American church and what has captured the hearts of millions of followers of Jesus, it is not weakness, it is strength. At least perceived strength. The problem is, however, that God delights in weakness. Now, weakness can mean several different things, correct? So, weakness can mean, well, we're mortal, we're limited, we're finite. There's an, there's an expiration date on all of us, right? So, weakness can just mean that we're human beings. We're made of dust. Weakness can also mean that there are individual frailties and infirmities that you have or that I have, right? So anxiety is one I'm wrestling through, right? I don't like it, I don't want it, I hate it, and it's a, it's a limp that I, I'm in the process of living with. Some of us are in circumstances that are incredibly devastating. Some of us have wrestled with physical illness or mental illness or whatever it is. That's 
part of the weakness being described here too. There's also weakness that comes from our capacity for sin and its consequences, right? That's not the weakness God is encouraging, just to be clear. My power is made perfect when you give yourself to your drug addiction. No, 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 that's not the weakness we're, we're describing. It's the weakness that comes from embracing the fact that we're simply not God, that we have limits. And, and I know, listen, everybody knows, you know, the, the basic rule of theology is God is God and we are not, but no one lives this way. And for proof, you just look at who does the American church show off? Who do we show off? Hey, look at this famous athlete that's a Jesus follower. Look at this famous movie star that's a Jesus follower. Look at this famous musician that's a Jesus follower. And hallelujah for those people and their testimonies. But who would Jesus show off? Well, here's a lady that had seven demons cast out of her. Here's a leper that interrupted a big sermon. Here's a Roman centurion, servant was healed, right? Here's Paul, not impressive, and yet we're here because of his ministry 2,000 years later. And there's this cliche we always beat up on, God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you heard this one? God will never give you more than you can handle. And I just want to say, I think God actually is relentlessly, passionately committed to giving us more than we can handle. And that does not mean everything that travails us is from him. We talk about this. Nope, nope, I don't think that's how it is. But when you study the kinds of people that God used, God has more need of your weakness than he does of your strength. I mean, think about it. Hey, we're going to found the Jewish nation on an elderly, infertile couple. Okay, why? Just to show it's from God and not from them. My spokesperson through the Exodus is going to be a guy who isn't a great speaker and wants his brother to do it, right? Moses and Aaron. Perfect. One of the leaders of my church is going to deny me three times. Of course. And my, my missionary to the non-Jews is a guy who's so Jewish, he was killing Christians prior to his conversion, Oh, yeah, and let me tell you about the guy I'm going to use to write the worship manual of the early church. Right, he had an affair, he murdered somebody. I mean, his family was incredibly dysfunctional and jacked up. Oh, and, and let me tell you about the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me tell you about the 12 kids that started this thing. Right, I mean, God delights in using the foolish things and the weak things and the things that are not to shame the things that are. So, why is it important to talk about everything and to tell really honest stories? Well, what are we boasting in? I mean, if all we put up here are superstars, if all we put up here are stories of victory, if all we ever talk about are things that are going great, then we just become another place where pretending is preferred. And the last thing that Jesus is interested in is the false self that we create for each other. The, the thing he's saving is the real self behind all of that pretending. And so we see it as a fundamental tenet of the community we want to be that we boast in weakness. Some of that weakness is the result of our own dumbness <laughs> and our own mistakes and our own sin, of course. Some of it's not. And so we never want to be a place where you pretend. And for far too long, Christian communities have been places that require you to pretend to be accepted. 
And we are so utterly opposed for that. Why? Because God's power rests on those people who've come to the end of their own. And so we're really, really interested in misfits and outcasts and screw-ups. We're really, really interested in people who don't just sit there and go, man, did this feed me? We're really interested in people who are hungry for something that, that is a bit more real than just the prepackaged sort of thing that's common. And so we think it is absolutely important. Bless you. I have water. I know the Heimlich. I'm sorry. Weakness. God's resting on you right now and you're coughing. So we're not interested in being impressive. We're interested in being free from the, the, the performing. For years, just, this is just for me, um, for years I felt so much pressure to be great in doing this. And, um, and clearly I've let that go. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so wonderfully refreshing to show up to a community and be excited more about the people than whether or not I was good. It's, it's so refreshing for me to realize that this thing doesn't rest on whether or not I kill it. It's so refreshing for me to realize I can be human and frail and that that's, that's welcome. It's so refreshing that so many of you courageously share stories of your brokenness and your weakness and your struggle. And in fact, there are some stories we don't let people tell just because they're too polished and pretty. And I know that's so dumb, but most of us aren't polished and pretty. And if you're one of those, bless you, we're thrilled you're here. Teach us. We sit at your feet to learn. But the stories we always want to tell are stories of pain and process. Why? Well, it's where most of us are living. And that's where Jesus does his best work. So I want to pray. And uh, we'll have Izzy come out. And we're going we're gonna to do some singing. And again, we always say this. We want to balance just permission. We don't want you to pretend. Um, don't feel like you got to stand or do whatever. Uh, but at the same time, we always realize that there is power in engaging this part, that engaging our bodies, engaging our voices, engaging our imaginations. And uh, so we try to balance both of those things. There's great permission to kind of just be and come as you are. That's what worship is. And there are times when we actually, come on, is it your, that, that was your cue. And there are times, because now i got to talk to you, get your guitar on. So hurry. I'm running out of stuff to say. And then there are times when uh, your body actually leads your spirit. You know, where you have David saying, you know, what's, what's wrong, oh my soul? Let's go. Let's get this thing going. So, so if, if you stand, stand out of um, a genuine desire to revere and to respect and to worship. If you sit, sit in the same way. We just realize um, the last thing God wants is a bunch of people who are pretending and mouthing words they don't mean. But we also realize that for some of us who are Jesus followers, this is, this is, our, this is our time to declare 
words that are true and meaningful. So I want to pray, and then Izzy uh, will take it away. God, we bless you and we love you. God, we boast in our weakness. We boast in our inability to fix ourselves and our problems. We boast in our inability to do the work that you've invited us into. We, we boast, God, of our inability to build a, a fancy, cool, hip church. We boast in our inability, God, to, to really see you and to see you move. And God, we want to be a place that lays down the desire for polish, that lays down the desire to put on a show, that lays down the desire to pretend. And so God, would this be a place, would you breathe into this grace and peace that it truly would be safe for people to come out of hiding? God, would you rest in our weakness and show yourself strong so that you are the only one that gets the credit. We love you and we bless you. Amen. I love, my personal love is just sitting while I'm singing about standing and dancing and clapping and it's all right. It's all right. So um, how was the sermon? No, I mean, I mean, what would you rate it? Out, out of 10? What would, you, what would you give it? Just, I'm just curious. Should, should we do it to get three? Excellent. I, that's higher than I thought. Uh, beautiful. It always, it always, it always staggers me that um, we evaluate church services the way we evaluate movies, right? Was it good? Did I like it? It's like, wow, I thought we were doing this for Jesus and not for us, right? I kind of thought. So, um, so we're going to do a little boasting and weakness this morning, okay? We're each going to give you an opportunity to share your deepest, darkest secrets. No, actually, uh, we've got a unique story. Uh, this is David. David is, uh, most of you know David. David is a pastor on our team. And um, the thing that has been really interesting, David is a, is a guy that um, we brought in to do all kinds of things, but, but has lived this journey about being safe to talk about anything in ways that is, have, uh, we've had a front row seat ever since we were sitting around my kitchen table dreaming about what would this church look like and what would it feel like and what would we want for it. And so anyway, this has been a long time coming and uh, we're grateful for your courage you. to share today. Thank you. Uh, I'm a little nervous, not going to lie, but I'm going to try to do my best. So I'm going to read it because I think that's for me the best way of doing this. But um, uh, hello, good morning. My name is David, uh, and I struggle with seeking validation. For a while, I thought that I didn't have a story because uh, pastors aren't supposed to have a story. Um, we're supposed to have it all together. I guess my story starts, uh, here it goes. <laughs> I'm going to try to get through this without kind of getting all emotional. Too late. Too late. Um, I guess my story starts off in my formative years uh, when, for some reason, I was the kid that was recipient of name-calling, the hitting, and making fun of. I didn't know at the time that I was being bullied, but something definitely was wrong. Uh, the la this lasted from kindergarten to eighth grade, and it got progressively worse every year. When I reached high school, the effect of this abuse had begun to manifest in itself in many ways. I became super insecure, recluse, non-confrontational, and afraid. Mainly, I became afraid of people. I never said anything to my parents because I thought to myself, they don't speak English, so uh, what are they going to do to help? If I was to tell my parents they weren't in, if they weren't equipped to deal with this, what would I do if the bullies found out? 
There was no safe place to go for help. In high school, during lunches, uh, I would literally try just to hide in the bathrooms and protect myself every day. It was hell, you guys. Hell. Uh, at the same time, I, I was involved in church. I, I grew up as a pastor's kid. Both my parents were in ministry and led a uh, Spanish church near our home. However, the experience in church was somewhat the same at, at school. I was given this view of God that seemed to parallel the, the perpetrators at school. Growing up in the Mexican culture, the view of God was one of fear. I remember constantly hearing phrases like, uh, Dios está mirando, God is watching you, or, ya ves, es castigo de Dios. It's a punishment from God if you get sick or if anything wrong is happening in your life. My view of God quickly became a view of God being dominating, revengeful, and harsh. The only thing I was able to do was to fall in line, follow the rules and formulas in order to get God's approval. I live in constant fear, convinced that my life was to be lived in submission to the stronger, more dominating personalities that I encountered every day, both from the kids at school and even God himself. My hopes and dreams became silent to those who had power over me. I became disappointed with life, with people, and with God. I was overweight, felt unwanted, unworthy, and insignificant. <laughs> As I entered into adulthood, my experience as a, child, uh, as a child and teen had created a filter from which I saw the world that became quiet, withdrawn, and very cautious. After college, after a brief stint as a public school teacher, for some crazy reason, I entered full-time church work. <laughs> <laughs> because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. I entered this stage thinking that now as an adult, I would f find refuge, a solace for my thoughts, views, and people in God. This time, things would be different. In the 17 years I've worked in church, there have been many great experiences, but many disappointing ones as well. Immediately, life consisted of putting together major church events, executing weekend services, recruiting people to volunteer, caring for other people's needs, etc. Although I enjoyed these aspects of church administration, I was told over and over again that I wasn't pastoral enough, that I was too administrative, non-empathetic enough. And yet most of my job, uh, my job responsibilities were about numbers, the growth and pulling off the biggest and best events possible. Mm. I just couldn't win. Mm. All the feelings from my, favorite, uh, from my formative years began to creep up again. The feeling of inferiority began to take place in my mind. And once again, I began to believe uh, I do not belong in church work because of the things I was not gifted at doing. The disappointment uh, with life, people, and God were back and more intense than ever. Anxiety and disappointment led... Uh, it, uh, anxiety and disappointment had become all too common again, and I was depressed on a regular basis. These were uh, there were days where I woke up with no energy, a bad attitude, a desire to be alone. At the same time, we were starting our family, and we had two little girls uh, that desired my energy and attention. I felt like I was failing as a pastor, a husband, a father. In an effort to take control of my life, I began to build walls up against people, hold them at arm's length, and become incredibly cynical, incredibly cynical, while at the same time, while at the same time trying to look more pastoral <laughs> on the outside. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, God. I took, on the mantra of, I took on the mantra of, I'll show you, I'll show you all that I can do this pastor thing. I'm not going to allow you to take advantage of me. I remember praying, God, make me more pastoral. Give me empathy for people. Allow me to cry with people. On the flip side, the more I asked for empathy, the angrier I became. 
the more cynical I became and the more disappointed I became with people and God. Why? Because I was trying to become something I was not. I was trying to perform to get, people, to get people's validation. All the praying I was doing was not working at all. There was a turning point when I realized I needed help. The anger, disappointment, and the cynicism were taking over my life. It was affecting everything, my health, my friendship, and even my marriage. I knew I needed to leave full-time church work, and I began talking to Mike about that process. During this time, he mentioned that he wanted to start a Christian community, and if I, wanted, if I was interested in joining him. I was intrigued because it didn't have the word church in it. Uh, and because church itself had begun such a dark place, such a dark word for me, and because I resonated with the values he wanted to create as a foundation for this new community. I didn't want more Bible study. I didn't want to pull off hundreds of more church events. And I didn't want typical church stuff anymore. I wanted Jesus. I desperately wanted to be part of something that stripped away all the mess of the church and just focused on his person of, this person of Jesus. I wanted to be part of something that would renew my desire to serve and something that, as a family, we could stand behind. I said yes. However, I was clear telling Mike <laughs> this was my last uh, try at this faith-based stuff. I remember saying, if this doesn't work out, and if it still doesn't work out, I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to find a job in, uh, uh, in administration somewhere and make a better living and make more money. At the same time, I also knew I, was re I really needed to see a counselor, reluctant to do so because that's not what pastors do, or Mexicans really, for that matter. I proceeded to take the difficult step, which has turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. Mm. In my mind, I, I had convinced myself that working for Vox was a new clean slate for me. I found myself around a table with people I respected, and I knew respected me. I remember sitting around Mike's, ta Mike's kitchen uh, table dreaming about what the Vox community would look like and, and helping come up with values like safe to belong, we exist to love the next generation, and wanting to love and serve the world. And being a community where oh, sorry, we had permission to talk about anything. And crazy enough, our staff meetings have become that for me, a safe place to be there. We, talked and we talk and plan Sundays together. We talk about anything, culture, culture, uh, culture, social, spiritual, personal things, you name it. This was different. This was new. I was given permission to ask questions, to doubt, and boy, did I doubt to be disappointed, and to share about the things that had caused so much pain. I was embraced, and I felt challenged to lean into my mess. I remember feeling nervous about admitting to the Vox team that I was seeing a counselor. And the response was, we're so proud of you. That was new to me. Leaning into my mess is one of the hardest, scariest things I've ever had to do. Mm. Another point for me has been... <laughs> another, okay, this is, this is funny. At the time, it, was, it wasn't, but looking back, it's hilarious. Another turning point for me has, uh, has been being tasked with creating our community pastor program at Vox. Community pastors who you'll meet in a few weeks are people in our Vox uh, family who have pastoral gifts, who care and shepherd those in our community. They will marry and bury, make hospital visits, and respond to crises within our Vox community and beyond. But why was I in charge of this? This had been very, um, this had been the very thing I feared most. What if I'm not pastoral enough? Knowing I would be, uh, I have to lead this incredibly, these incredibly pastoral people, I brought up emotions again of being not good enough. This was terrifying. So in the spirit of being safe to belong, and with the idea of being able to talk about anything, I spoke up. 
I said to the team, I appreciate you wanting me to do this. However, I have no place leading this because I don't feel pastoral. Mike responds with, hey, I know you're not pastoral. We don't need you to do that. We need someone to administrate the heck out of this thing. Pastoral people already have the gift. You don't need to teach them how to do this. They just need to create, you just, you just need to create a structured environment to let them thrive with systems, standard operating procedures, and resources. For the first time in church work, I felt no shame. I felt empowered. Why? Because I love charts. I love making charts. I love creating procedures. I love helping people give, I love help people give structure. I love telling them what to do. <laughs> I love bringing order to chaos. I was given permission to be and to do the things that I thought I couldn't do in, in a church setting. Uh, I still and served within my gifts. I felt validated. I'm still in process. I still question. I still doubt and fear a lot. I still have dark days. Uh, but the, for the most part, for the first time, I feel optimistic, which is new. I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt. I'm learning to forgive, and finally, I'm seeing Jesus in such a different light. The Jesus I knew in my youth, when I was hiding in bathrooms at school and fearing the wrath and retribution, is not the Jesus I know now. Ah, the Jesus of grace, of being for me, and for just being beautiful, is so much more attractive and real. And seeing him this way is mainly because of the grace that has been extended to me at Vox by giving me, even as a pastor, permission to be myself, permission to be in process, to be safe, to belong as well. This, to me, has been incredibly healing and is bringing me to a better, to a better perspective of the true heart of God. Come on. Thank you. <laughs> Love you, dude. Awesome. So that's who's leading the thing. So if you're jacked up, you join us. Uh, <laughs> oh, so proud of you. Um, I, I, working um, as a, a public and professional Christian is one of the most toxic things you can do for your soul because you have a financial interest in pretending. And to be at a place and to be a part of a community where you can lay that down is so amazing. So that's a credit to you. Uh, I cannot tell you how and what joy um, I receive from you every week for doing what we're about to do together. It is the highlight of my week. Um, it is when the community of broken people and weak people assemble to take the cup and the bread to give themselves to Jesus and to receive by grace his gift, the gift of himself. We've added the prayer shaws from last week, if you remember, the story where the woman touches just the tassel of Jesus' robe and is healed, just as a public symbol for those of us who are seeking healing for something in our lives. God does heal. And so to grab the tassel or to, to take a bit of parchment and to write down something that we can pray for. It's been a great privilege for us to do this, um, to roll those parchments up and to place them uh, in one of those holes. Um, we'll have two people over here that would love to pray for you if you'd like to be prayed for right now. Uh, otherwise, our prayer team and our pastoral team will be praying for you during the week. 
Um, for those of you who practice generosity, um, we have participation boxes around the room. It's, it, we are incredibly generous. We have incredibly generous people. So that's free if you'd like. But most of all, this is the time where we respond to what we've heard. This is our work time. This is when we don't just sit and passively watch and observe, where we give ourselves. And as, as always, all are welcome at the table. Doesn't matter if you have the faith of just a tiny bit or the faith that has you know, been developed over a lifetime. Jesus welcomes you to the table. The table's not for people that are polished and put together, otherwise none of us would show up. The table's for the screw-ups, the misfits, and the outcasts, and so that happens to be all of us. So this is your time. Um, we'll worship together, we'll sing, we'll participate in the Lord's Supper, and, uh, and we'll be together as a family. So God, I thank you for the work that um, you've done in David, but in, in many of us, where you've brought us to the place where we can take a deep breath and exhale, and we can acknowledge that we're not perfect, and that we're broken, and that there's weakness, and that there's darkness, and that you do not condemn us. In Christ, you have not only forgiven, but in the process of transforming us. And God, so we come to the table as millions of people do today, to take the body, to take the blood, take the bread and the cup, to remember what it is that you've done, to present ourselves presently to you, and to anticipate your return. God, as a family, it is our privilege, and we're grateful to do this as an act of worship, to lay hold of a prayer shawl and a tassel to cry out to you for healing, to offer ourselves again and again. And so God, would you walk among us and would you give grace to us as we limp up to the table, whether emotionally or physically? And would you meet us there in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, we pray, amen. <laughs> oh, my brothers and sisters, let us all take naps. I bless. You have a free nap day today. Whatever else you've got to do, napping. Or maybe, you, maybe, maybe you're sitting here thinking, I just got one. It's fantastic. Thank you. So either way, stand up, my brothers and my sisters. We're out of here. You are now commissioned, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, as an ambassador and minister of reconciliation, bearer of good news that does not rest on your perfection or excellence, but rather rests in your weakness one of the great ironies of uh, ministry is that your limp is the occasion for your greatest blessing to others. And uh, when we hide those, we actually inhibit uh, the work that God can do in and through us. And so may we be people who grow increasingly at peace with the fact that we'll never have it all together. And may we be people who in such grace give that grace to our neighbors, our enemies, and our friends. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you, and may he give you peace in these days. Amen? Next week, we've got a Mexican fiesta. So what it, what's the slide? Disanueve de marzo. Okay? 
So we thought May is too far away, so it's supposed to be 80 degrees. We're going to have some bounce houses. We're going to have some food. David's going to dress up as a pinata, and uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but anyway, for you guys, come back after you're done. We'll be out in the front lawn. Otherwise, visit voxoc.com for anything or any needs you have. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Have a great day. Happy spring forward. Enjoy the extra hour of daylight. Goodbye. See you later. Say hello to my friend, Tim. What's up, boy? Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.